Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I have three students with me today, one repeat uh, performer and two new guys. How about if we have you introduce yourself, Joshua, and then we'll go from there. Okay, I'm just a glutton for punishment. I'm Joshua. I'm a third year med student at Rocky Vista University. Uh, excited to be here. I'm Boston. I'm also a third year student at Rocky Vista University and excited to be joining you guys for this podcast. So so I'm going to interrupt for just a moment. Now, Boston, you listened to your first podcast ever this morning. Yes. Day 16 of 20 into your rotation. Yes, I did. And I'm not meaning to torment you at all. There are a lot of things to study. Did you find listening to the podcast a better experience, worse experience, or about what you expected? It's okay to be honest. About what I expected. I, I listened to it on the car, in the car on the way here, which I feel is a great modality to listen to a podcast in general. So the, the, the way we have this built, so we're trying not to get in the way of first aid for the boards, the, the shelf prep stuff that you already have. If you're at home, I don't necessarily say listen to these podcasts, right? And I do say, hey, I think listening while driving is a good idea. And your experience was? Great. I feel like I... I was able to learn and uh, understand the material very well. It was very clear. Um, but yeah, also, like you said, it's better to look at books and study when you're at home. Fair enough. That's, that's exactly kind of where we want this to be. We want this to be a commute thing. All right, so uh, thank you. I put you on the spot there. You weren't expecting that. Sean. <laughs> yeah, so like Dr. Randy said, my name is Sean. I'm a third year medical student, I'm also at Rocky Vista University. Now, typically, the students that have developed the podcast, I ask them to tell me just a little bit more. So, Sean, what are you doing in medicine? Where are you headed, uh, ultimately, do you think? Ultimately, I like family medicine or emergency medicine. My experience with psychiatry here has been an overall really positive experience, and so it may have creeped up a little bit on the uh, <laughs> number, differential. Uh, number eight instead of number 11. Okay. Let's go nine instead <laughs> nine of eight. Nine instead of eight. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> You enjoyed the rotation more than you expected. Uh, yes, absolutely. You do have Dr. Thomas. She's pretty cool. Yeah, she's great. She, she really is. Uh, so emergency medicine or family practice, do you mm -hmm. lean one direction or the other yet? I kind of lean in the middle, actually, and I think I've landed on urgent care, something that I'm kind of the best of both worlds. A lot of physicians, it seems, open up an urgent care clinic and then eventually turn that into a full-time practice. Is that the direction you would go, or would you hope to stay urgent, or do you know? Not sure yet. That's a good idea, though. I haven't heard of that. So that's something I'll look into. I think the clinic where I go to used to be an urgent care clinic, and is now kind of, it was an IHC facility that I think has flipped into a uh, primary care setting. So, uh, so Boston. Yeah. <laughs> Directions at this point. I'm stuck between ophthalmology and family medicine. So I think I will choose family medicine as a backup. Um, but yeah, I'm excited. It's a competitive field, ophthalmology, so. It is very competitive. Now, a lot of students who end up in certain fields have experience that draws them to that field. I'm under the impression you had eye stuff that kind of leads you that direction. I, I did have some eye surgery. Uh, originally going into medical school, I had a background in cardiology and a lot of cardiology research, and so I thought I was going to go that direction. I also have some background in dermatology. I was an MA for like five years. Um, and then finally, I landed on the only thing where I've had surgery in my life in is ophthalmology, so. Mm -hmm. Very cool. You didn't expect this, did you? No, I didn't. Yeah, we, we try to have a, a kind of a chance for the students to introduce themselves. My feeling is the other the other benefit of these podcasts, since we talked about that a little bit earlier, was so that other students could hear the breadth of things that people are considering and why they're considering those things. Sometimes student add, students add a little more, a little less. We hear a bit more about that decision making, or sometimes it's as simple as I have no idea. <laughs> um, it's been a lot of fun though. So how did you two, let's shift gears now and get into the meat of the topic. How did you two come up with the topic? Go ahead and introduce it and then tell me why this topic. Yeah, so the topic we've chosen is prion disease, uh, specifically Kutzfeldt-Jakob disease. 
And while we were with Dr. Thomas, one of her patients, um, their grandmother had recently passed from creutzfeldt jakob disease, and so she was talking to us about that, and Boston and I knew we wanted to do a podcast, and we hadn't decided on a topic, and brought it, this to Dr. Roundy, and he thought it would be a great idea. I, I was actually very intrigued in this, uh, wasn't I? So you had some clinical experience. Um, you were asked questions about it. You wanted to know more, led to this. In terms of high yield, I think I'm going to try and jump into that. There are the the neurocognitive disorders. Right? We have this classification in the DSM of neurocognitive disorders. Then we have a number of diagno diagnoses within the neurocognitive disorders. We have a major neurocognitive disorder and a minor neurocognitive disorder. My understanding is that for both of those, you either need to have uh, clinical suspicion, a caregiver concern, or you need to have better, I think it says, testing demonstrating changes for a neurocognitive disorder. And the key distinction between a minor and a major neurocognitive disorder is that functionality is preserved. So even if somebody has had cognitive change, they may have a mild neurocognitive disorder because they can still complete their ADLs, IADLs, um, instrumental activities of daily living, function without requiring caregiver support on any level. That's how I understand the difference between the neurocognitive disorders. Right? And it reminds me a little bit of the distinction between um, hypomania and a full-blown manic episode. Mm -hmm. In one, you haven't been hospitalized. It's kind of the way I see it. And in the other, you've had some sort of um, hospitalization or some sort of challenge that severely impeded your ability to function. Uh, the second part of this though for, in terms of high yield is how to diagnose prion disease. Did one of you two want to tackle that? Who has that? Maybe I do. I, I, I know I moved it around. Uh, I probably took it out of the place where it belonged. I had written that one down. Did you? Do you want to jump yeah. in on that Joshua? So you know Doing well on the shelf exam for psychiatry requires, you know, knowing those DSM-5 criteria is cold. And so just to go over that quickly for prion disease, neurocognitive disorders, you have to have the criteria being met for major or mild neurocognitive disorders that we just talked about. You have to have an insidious onset and rapid progression. And then the one that's more specific to prion diseases, there has to be either motor, a motor component like myoclonus or ataxia or biomarker evidence. Now that one gets a little bit tricky because uh, confirming a diagnosis of prion disease requires, uh, is usually done on autopsy because it requires brain material, but there's a couple of really cool markers that we can talk about either now or later. Let's go ahead and do it now. Yeah. So you can get biomarkers in the CSF. Um, the big ones are 1433. That one's huge uh, for prion disease because you don't see that in any of the other neurocognitive disorders. You also see an increase in tau, but that can be very nonspecific. And then there's a very specific uh, test uh, called the RT-QUIC or the... Real-time uh, quaking, um, immediate... Confirmatory conversion, quaking induced conversion, which I, yeah, I, and I didn't I didn't look this test up, but I'm under the impression that what happens is you get CSF protein and then you create some sort of physical trauma that causes the tr uh, transformation of the protein. Yeah, the folding. So you can look for that, and if you have either the motor symptoms or the biomarker, that's your third thing. And as anybody who's read through the DSM has known, that the last uh, marker is pretty standard is this is not going to be attributable or the symptoms you're seeing in the patient are not attributable to any other medical condition that can be better explained. So that's your basics for DSM-5. Thankfully the DSM-5 doesn't differentiate between all of the various specific types of prion disease. Um, they lump them all in together though the difference between them is, is pretty interesting and I think we'll talk about that in a second. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't uh, understand the distinctions between the different types of prion diseases, and and I probably still don't. But at least I now have some awareness that there's more than one. Right? It's not uh, just uh, the same prion, as far as I can tell, in different kinds of uh, different species. Right? I think these are all different um, d 
diseases. With that in mind, let's let's talk about the history of prion disease. Who who had that? Yeah, so I talked a little bit about the history. Um, I wanted to jump a, just a little bit. So in the 18th century, um, we talked about scrapey, scrappy. How would you say that? I was hoping somebody else knew the answer. To that. <laughs> I, I heard back in uh, preclinical years, all of our professors said scrapey. Scrapey. So we'll go with scrapey. I then. thought it was scrapey too. Okay. So. There you go. Well, I hope so. scrapey. Scrapey it is. Found in sheep, and I'll, we'll go to that in a little bit, but in 1950, 1960s, um, someone named Carlton Gajusek, maybe you need a spelling check or a pronunciation check on that I thought that it as might well. have been Gajusek. Gajusek, but probably I, that. Again, I, we're on these names. Right. Um, he was exploring a population in New Guinea. Um, long story short, was able to find Kuru, and that's the first transmissible spongiform encephalopathy and when we say spongiform encephalopathy we're talking about it looks like there's been holes created in the brain um, oh, i've been told it kind of looks like swiss cheese a little bit when you're or looking like at the brain yeah yeah or hence the name like a sponge um and how how in depth would you like me to go on the history of kuru dr Roundy? talk about it okay tell, tell me what was interesting to you um what was interesting to me was kind of the history of how you said Gajusek? 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 Okay. Yeah, I think that's it. So he was in New Guinea uh, kind of looking at these people because there had been some, some, I guess you could say, mysterious deaths that had been happening. And it came to be that this was due to cannibalism that would um, happen in these populations. And so there was these two different tribes a north tribe and a south tribe. And how they found that it was transmissible was that the northern tribe would practice something called exocannibalism, and that was essentially just eating the uh, body of an enemy, and endocannibalism, which was practiced by the southern tribe, and that was more so out of respect for the dead. And so around the 1950s, the northern tribe stopped doing the exocannibalism, and they found that the Kuru actually wasn't found in that tribe as much anymore as compared to the southern tribe. The tribe that was eating their dead? Yes. Yeah. And I thought, I'm under the impression that brains. They wasted almost none of the body. The only thing that did not get eaten was actually the gallbladder because they thought it was a little bit too bitter. But every other part was used and eaten. And we now know that um, this disease is primarily in the brain, so that's something they would eat as well. Now, the 50s, so, so I, I think we had Kreutzfeld and Jacob who, who identified this illness in humans in the 20s. Um, we talked about scrapie in the 18th century. When did uh, Kreutz, or when did uh, BSE, bovine spongiform encephalopathy, show up? Where does it fit in this picture? That was more in the 80s and 90s. Um, that formed as a result of um, what is thought to be a um, transformation or mutation of scrapie um, and causing cattle to, be, uh, to have this disease called bovine spongiform encephalopathy. And what was happening is that humans would eat the meat of, of these cattle and become infected by this disease. So I think I just jumped a little bit, right? Um, we talked a little bit about Kuru, about how Gadgesek was able to finally identify the protein. And if I understand correctly, it took him over a decade. He to, was there for a while, yeah. He, he worked on this for a very long time until he found what was described as the causative agent. Now, interestingly enough, one of the articles I read said this this fits uh, is it Koch's postulate for infectious disease or pastors pastures I don't know. In, in any case one of the articles did right you guys remember this from first year biology classes in college it sounds familiar <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while but the idea of transmission transmissibility is accurate with this right so they were able to transmit this disease to chimpanzees they were able to see uh, the same kinds of things with both motor effects um, and also cognitive effects is my understanding and there are other illnesses like this and and I think rather than spend a lot more time on maybe the history we talk about some of the other types of 
uh, or a, a prion diseases. Now, we talked about bovine spongiform encephalopathy, but I wanted I want to talk about these just a little bit differently. So, I was under the impression that you could only catch one of these spongiform encephalopathies, or potentially have a spontaneous um, a mutation that led to this. But that's not entirely accurate, is it? There are a couple of different ways to do this. So let's talk about spontaneous, acquired, and then familial uh, infection. And I think infection is still the right word. So who's talking about spontaneous infection? I'll talk about spontaneous infection. Um, it comprises 10 to 15 percent of prion uh, disease. Um, and it's, it's called SCJD, so spontaneous Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. Um, the, it is caused by genetic changes. Um, most often in the PRNP uh, protein codon 129. Um, so what happens is homo, homozygous individuals with methionine, methionine um, genomics or genotypes uh, or valine valine genotypes are most sensitive to developing the disease, uh, whereas the heterozygous genotypes have a more protracted form of the, of the disease. Uh, it was originally thought that heterozygous genotypes could not get the disease at all, but has been recently shown that they have a that protracted form. Um, so spontaneous CJD is still associated with that uh, PRNP genome. So prion, let's see, P-R-I-O-N protein? No, prion, let's see, P-R-I-O-N-P stands for something, right? So prion we first got from proteinaceous infectious particle, or infections particle, and that was uh, Prusner who, who identified that, right? And he was also given the Nobel Prize but then I think the protein that we're talking about is 19Q13, right? This is the gene that encodes a couple of uh, proteins that are channels of some sort. Uh, I think they're the FPRL channel, uh, genes, or proteins rather, and they're all in this 19, um, 19Q13 area. And, and so just going back to spontaneous, just to make sure I understand this, you're saying that this is the group that doesn't have a familial form necessarily, yeah. but there's a familial risk to it. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's idiopathic or spontaneous, and I, I apologize, I mixed that up. I mixed that with the familial, which is um, different than the sporadic or variable. And, and so just to make sure I understand this, this is the, uh, the codon 129 met, met is the risk for developing the infection. It's not the familial type. Uh, from what I understand, the codon 129 is 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 the um, has a risk for developing the familial type. Okay, and then there seems to be some families that have. Uh, I'm sorry. Let's go to the acquired or the transmissible transmissible spongiform encephalopathies. So the first is Kuru. We talked about that quite a bit. The second one is variant. CJD, so the little letters in front of uh, CJD, V is the variant, which means that it's acquired. The S is the spontaneous, meaning that you have a mutation. And then CJD, just no letters in front of it would be the familial form. Tell me about how you could catch uh, variant CJD. One of the things we um, found out, I think this was mentioned earlier, is called bovine spongiform in the diet. And so this was prevalent, I believe, in England in the 80s and 90s, kind of if you've heard of the mad cow disease outbreak um, related to that. And so if you were to eat meat, the idea was that had blood in it, uh, the disease could be found in the blood. And if you ate it, you could possibly get that disease as well. And so one thing they say now is if you were in England in the 80s or 90s, you're actually not allowed to donate blood because of the possibility that you might have eaten meat that was contaminated. Yeah. It's interesting because in the history you were, uh, you were talking about how the like the incubation period for some of these things can be super, super long, which is why we're still seeing that question in on uh, blood donation forms, right? 80s right. and 90s, it seems like we're far enough away, but it can incubate for 
a long time. Long, long time. That's correct. Now I was intrigued by some of this. Uh, I did hear that one of the reasons nobody wants to get a biopsy to see if if these if there is evidence of a spongiform encephalopathy is because you have to throw everything away that you've used, right? They, I don't know if that's still accurate. Does anybody know? I do know that when we, I was studying for step one, understanding like what kind of sterilization patterns that you would need for various bacteria, viruses, and then for prion diseases, the level of meticulous like sterilization and killing everything for prion disease is pretty intense. So, so there not, is a way to keep the, the instruments now? I think that if you have bleach. like bleach and metal instruments that you can do the whole like throw the entire nine yards at it, you bleach. might be able to. Yeah, bleach is the only thing that can take care of a prion. Okay. So I made a mistake on my last podcast and uh, my younger brother called me out on it. So on the stuff that I'm, uh, I'm being more careful again, uh, it was the question about whether or not dextromethorphan had to be hidden behind the counter and requires ID, and it apparently does not. But I was sure it did at one point, and I'm wrong. He was happy to point that out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, th I think that's what made this next question, uh, part of this so interesting to me is neurosurgeries, cataracts, uh, HGH, duramater grafts, right? All of these things were potential transmission routes for this disease. I, I was surprised about the HGH injections. Did any of you find out why that was the case? No, we didn't find any information on that, but we did find that it was one of the more common um, causes of that, um, along with the duramater grafts. Um, the, most, the most common was the duramater grafts. There were almost 500 patients in 2020 with that and if I remember right it was about 230 that had um, HGH uh, caused infection. That seems like a lot and that's worldwide or United States? I believe that was worldwide. Okay. Now the familial prion diseases surprised me quite a bit especially this so I went to OMIM and kind of got lost for a while I think uh, you probably got tired of me disrupting your typing. Uh, Boston was busy typing. We were working on a Google Doc together, and all of a sudden it would just bounce. Does that sound about right? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> what is he doing this time? So the one that surprised me the most was this hunting disease, Huntington disease phenocopy. Did any of you guys look at that? I saw a little bit of that. Um, I, I thought it was interesting that it how similar it looks to Huntington disease, but it's it's not. Yeah, I was completely surprised by this. So apparently some portion of people who have what is a phenotype of Huntington's, Huntington disease looks exactly like the condition. There's some portion that do not have CAG repeats. And what they've found is that some portion of those that do not have uh, CAG repeats have eight extra octide repeats, which I thought was quite interesting and I think it's also in, it is in this 2013 or 20p13 uh, chromosome area. Uh, let's see there was one other one uh, two other ones that I I was just floored by this one. Does anybody want to pick up Gertman Stossler Schenker? I was also looking at that one. Um, <laughs> yeah I can't say it either so uh, the main symptom for that is progressive cerebral ataxia um, and Basically, um, it's part of the Pro 102 leucine um, uh, amino acid or, or protein. So is that I'm the? Not, I think that's the proline 2 leucine change at 102. Okay. Right? Um, it's it it says that uh, most often walking difficulties and dementia are, are the most common symptoms. Um, but they also have areflexia, ataxia, and fragility in their lower limbs, and which is very similar to Friedrich's ataxia. And so they found that the nerve conduction studies in Friedrich's ataxia will be normal um, despite having the ataxia. Then the last one that blew my mind I think we have a couple more here, but I think really just the last one is worth mentioning. 
fatal familial insomnia. Who uh, who read about that? I also read about that one. Um, so it's characterized by a disordered sleep-wake cycle. Um, and the, ca- the case study that I read was a, ch- a Chinese woman, and she had, um, I think it was like three or four different um, therapies that they had tried, and it was just an untreatable insomnia. Um, they also have dysautotomia and motor signs, um, and then on the MRI you can see predominantly thalamic degeneration. And this, this was actually, when you say case report, this was not shelf prep stuff. This was, I think, one of the published articles that we, we looked at. Right? Yes. Yeah. So we've now talked about a number of types of spongiform encephalopathies. Again, the key part of the discussion was that high yield at the beginning where you might find either the biomarkers or the uh, quaking, what is it, the RTQUIC test. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it seems like really what we're hoping for on a podcast like this is how do you prepare for the shelf exam? How do you pick, first of all, we, we know a few things about prion disease now, but how do you identify which is the correct disease that you're looking at, right? We've talked about neurocognitive disorders and we've talked about one specifically, but what's the key to this? So. I'd, I'd started uh, into thinking about how to approach these and the wall of text that I had put on the Google Doc eventually turned into this beautiful chart that we have that we'll go through. But and maybe I, we can put that in the, I wonder if there's a way to import that under the information about the podcast. Yeah. I'll try. I think it'll be super helpful because when you're trying to distinguish between all the different neurocognitive disorders, it's helpful to look at the onset did it happen fast? Did this have an insidious or a gradual, subtle way with harmful effect is the definition of insidious um, onset. Then once you do have these symptoms, uh, how fast are you going to decline is the next thing to look at. And then the nature of the decline can help you distinguish a couple of very uh, particular neurocognitive disorders. And then each one Uh, that we will go through has either a specific test that you can do, a key motor symptom, or a key cognitive symptom that uh, board prep resources and even the shelf and board exams will will clue you in on. You know, it might be hard clinically to get all of this information, but prepping for the questions, you will be given, you know, something about the timing, something about the degradation, a key test or key symptom that will allow you to be able to distinguish. So, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was about to say, as an example, we wanted to run through this chart. I'll go through that first one talking about prion disease. Um, the onset for prion disease would be insidious, so nothing that would really set it apart a lot. Um, the decline rate in prion disease is actually really rapid, and death usually occurs within one year. So you're going to see a, a very fast decline there. Some of the more key clinical features that Joshua was just talking about that would distinguish prion disease would fall under tests. We had talked about looking at the CSF, finding that 14.33, and Dr. Roundy had talked about the RT, uh, QIC, or the quick test that you could do. Um, I have found a couple of practice questions that really tried to key in on the motor symptoms, though, specifically myoclonus and ataxia. And I think that's worth noticing because as I look through the chart, that's the only dementia that has myoclonus and ataxia that is that are the common ones in the DSM. Yeah. And it's specifically all of the questions that I've seen about it go about, you know, startle induced myoclonus. Um, is pretty when I hear that or read that at this point in time, my mind immediately starts to skim down on the answer choices and see if there's any sort of prion disease, any sort of other kind of lead ins for this kind of dementia. Alzheimer's. Who wants to pick that one up? I'll do Alzheimer's. Um, It also has a pretty insidious onset, um, but in contrast to prion disease, it is a slow decline um, over a number of years. The nature of the decline is very linear, um, and on testing you'll find uh, beta amyloid plaques as well as neurofibrillary tangles in the CSF. I thought there was uh, 
my understanding is that there is one approved test for diagnosing Alzheimer's disease, and I thought it was some sort of uh, imaging or functional testing. Did any of you guys see anything about approved tests for Alzheimer's disease? Now, there is a couple of different things that I've seen you can look for on resources like UpToDate, but as far as like first aid board prep material, they Nothing really want you to that. focus on more of the pathophysiology. So plaques and tangles yeah. mm -hmm. and decline in memory and learning. Yeah. So lost keys is a memory issue, yeah. right? and that'll maybe be one of the places where that's pointed out. Frontotemporal dementia. So I, I like uh, frontotemporal dementia in that it's you're going to have the same kind of timing as your Alzheimer's. Uh, insidious onset, slow decline with a linear uh, degradation, but the, um, the patient presentation and the actual uh, symptoms that you see a lot are going to be a little bit stranger instead of just I would say kind of vanilla symptoms of a decline in ability to do ADLs, you're going to be presented with somebody who's just losing their inhibitions. It's behavioral changes before um, the neurocognitive declines. You're going to see a lot of people having to go into early retirement because they're either yelling at their coworkers, sometimes making inappropriate advances on coworkers is, is the story that you see a lot of times. If you are lucky enough to get uh, tests uh, for frontotemporal dementia, they're pretty specific. You can see pick bodies and TDP 43 in the CSF, so you can see those kind of things and, and really be clued in. But in my experience, and, and, may, and I'll ask uh, Boston and Sean, I don't, I've not gotten a lot of those imaging or the tests for frontotemporal. It's a lot of that patient presentation of the inhibition loss followed by neurocognitive decline. Definitely. Yeah, I agree with that as well. And that makes some sort of sense. I think TDP 43 isn't as sensitive as we would like. It, it picks up what is probably one phenotype, mm. is my guess. Uh, I, th I can't remember if it was 40 or 60% sensitive, and I, I, don't, I don't recall which at this point, but it was one of those two numbers. Do you ever have questions when it's talking about the personality changes about obsessive symptoms that start showing up or hyperorality? Putting things in people's mouths, things along those lines. No, it's just mostly about, mostly about the personality changes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. they might have been in there, but you know, with the shelf exam, they really want to make sure that the question is fair. We as students might not feel like some of these questions are fair, but they want to make sure that the question is fair. So oftentimes, you'll get a good constellation of behavioral symptoms. How about neurocognitive disorder with Lewy bodies? Yeah, I can take that one. So with Lewy bodies, uh, onset is insidious, also slow decline. Um, the thing that sets this apart, it's actually really similar to another neurocognitive disorder we uh, we have called dementia, and or sorry, Parkinson's, and that can be really difficult to differentiate. But the thing that helps us is the cognitive decline must precede the Parkinson's symptoms by less than 12 months. I thought it was at least 12 months. So. Less it might be it might be at least twelve months. I buy at least twelve months. months. I think twelve months. They can't be there at the same time, so you have to separate them out right. by a year. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think the cognitive had to precede the the tremor, right? By, by quite a bit. By twelve months. But go ahead. Sorry. No, that's fine. Thank you for clearing that up. Um, you'll see on MRI diffuse uh, cortical atrophy. Um, the key motor symptom you'd find is REM movement sleep disorder. And the key cognitive symptom would be fluctuations in attention. And one thing that we didn't have on here as well is you might have some visual hallucinations with Lewy body dementia. That's right, that's a good one to pull out. Uh, sometimes those are called Lilliputian hallucinations because they're small, sometimes small animals, right? Oh, yeah. I don't know if you have questions that ask about that. I've always gotten shadow people, but more commonly uh, animals running across like hallways in the corner of their eyes, so it's not you know, full-on psychotropic medication kind of hallucinations, but it is that kind of things darting back and forth in your peripheral vision that look like animals. And that's an interesting thing to say, too, because I think this is one of those conditions where we see high sensitivity to antipsychotic medications. Mm -hmm. Is that, It's either this one or Parkinson. I think it's both. 
or it's I know, both. I know for sure it's Parkinson's, but I think it's both. I think it is too. Uh, vascular dementia is maybe one of two that really give us that onset differentiation. Who's got vascular dementia? I'll take vascular. So yeah, vascular is, is a very sudden onset and the decline rate is really what sets it apart because it's stepwise and it's based on the number of vascular events that the patient experiences. Um, so you can look for that in, in the stem, that it will be a stepwise decline. Um, to test for this, you want to check a CT and an MRI. You will see um, most commonly vascular infarcts. Um, and you can also look for hypertension uh, with uh, sudden functional change as far as the key motor symptoms go. It's interesting in the question, sometimes it's very, very subtle for that stepwise that you almost have to sometimes only catch it on your second read through. There was one question they said, six months ago, they stopped being able to do X. Four months ago, they stopped being able to do Y. And when you're reading that very quickly, trying to do questions, what is it? We have a minute 30 on average to be able to do that. Sometimes you're just like, oh, this is a, just listing out the problems. But when you go back through and realize that they are specifying like specific month timestamps where family members or caretakers were able to see, oh my gosh, they just lost that entire ability to do that thing. So this is one of the conditions where we think about comorbid illnesses. I think the Parkinson and the uh, Lewy body dementias are another area where you think about maybe comorbid conditions. So hypertension, one direction, um, Parkinson's symptoms gives you another comorbidity to think about with two of these. The next one to think about though is HIV related dementia. And I don't think you're going to get the clue this is a person who has HIV, what kind of dementia is it, right? I mm -hmm. think instead you're going to be asked to figure out what might be missing. And in fact, I'm guessing you don't see a lot of questions about HIV dementia or neurocognitive disorder from HIV. Um, the keys to this, to, unless anybody wanted to pick this up, uh, the keys to this is that it's insidious, but depending on where the virus is affecting the brain, you can get different kinds of decline, and you can also see some different kinds of, um, or a speed of decline can vary. And I think, even though we have linear in here as the nature of the decline, uh, I thought I read that it can vary somewhat depending on the system that's affected by the virus. And then, of course, um, the CT would show diffuse atrophy, which may or may not help you that much. And then one of the things that you need to make sure is it's not due to uh, cryptococcal meningitis or some sort of PML, right? And uh, I, think, I think it's just a very difficult uh, diagnosis to quiz about, and so I'd be surprised if, if any of you guys have had questions about HIV-related dementia or HIV neurocognitive disorder due to HIV. I haven't had any. Maybe one, but not not many at all. Yeah. Yeah, I think we I had a, we had a lot of questions in our preclinical years, but as far as shelf and board exams, it's really hard to test on it because it's very it's kind of a diagnosis of exclusion. And diagnoses of exclusions are, are pretty hard to write a multiple choice exam. Seems question like about. Yeah. And and that's kind of where I was left. Um Parkinson's, uh, I'm sorry, dementia due to Parkinson's. Who's got this one? Yeah, so Parkinson's due, or dementia due to Parkinson's has, and we keep saying that wrong, neurocognitive, major neurocognitive, oh, yeah. or minor, minor neurocognitive. We'll skip the major and minor. Yeah. I've said it wrong 50 times, but I'm going to try and do it better. So neurocognitive yeah. disorder. So neurocognitive disorder due to Parkinson's, uh, insidious onset, or insidious onset, slow decline rate, um, and then with Parkinson's as opposed to Lewy body uh, uh, neurocognitive disorder, your motor symptoms are going to precede the cognitive symptoms, right? So those are your classic. Anybody who was studying for step one should still have those in the back of their mind. It's your pill rolling tremor, shuffling gait, those Parkinsonian um, things as well. but. On the back end, as the disease progresses, you're going to see that 
just neurocognitive decline, uh, not being able to do the same ADLs that you were able to do a couple of years ago, and that kind of stuff. So what is festination, F-E-S-T-I-N-A-T-I-O-N, or fascination? Anybody know? I think that's where our patients with Parkinson's disease stand up, and there's sort of a little bit of a stumbling shuffle at the start as mm. they get moving. Hmm. I have to look that up and see if yeah. that's totally wrong or correct. Does that have anything to do with uh, they discovered when you can put somebody something like a very small barrier at the feet of somebody with Parkinson's disease? It actually helps them kind of get their gait going. Is that the same kind of I have no family? Idea. Oh. I'll be interested to know when you report on it tomorrow. I, I will. Do so. <laughs> <laughs> that's a terrible thing for an attending to do, isn't it? Maybe I'll look out up first. If I do, I'll text you. Uh, let's see, Huntington's disease. Huntington disease. Yeah, I wanted to do this one. Um, I'll go over kind of the symptoms that we had. So onset would be uh, earlier onset in age, and we find that something called anticipation happens. Whereas, um, if you did inherit this, it will come on earlier. If your dad or your mom had it when they were forty, there's a chance you might get it when you're thirty-five. Um, it is slow in decline rate and it is a linear decline. Uh, how we would test it would be genetic, genetic testing. We would find CAG repeats and you would find more than 35. Um, the reason why I wanted to do this one though, I had an experience in my last rotation for family medicine. Um, a person came in with Huntington and the attendant told me, before he told me he had Huntington, was to, act, to look out for his physical movements during the exam. And he was kind of a little restless. Um, and one thing he would do is his arm would maybe flail, but he would flail and maybe try to fix his hair, or he would, his foot would shoot out and he'd pretend to tie his shoe. And so after the patient experience, the attending told me he's had some sort of CBT or behavioral training where he's been able to kind of mask those movements. And those movements we call chorea. And it's a really wow. high yield um, theme for the board exams as well to know chorea is associated with Huntington's disease. I didn't know that you could have uh, training to kind of blend or chameleon those uh, oh, movements. He, it seemed like extensive training because every five or ten seconds there would be a movement and he would try to you know, do something to make it look intentional. Wow. Sounds like uh, a guy I know that has motor tics. <laughs> you guys are pointing at me. <laughs> <laughs> because it's true. Uh, TBI. So this is our second um, rapid onset, right? Who has TBI? I will take TBI. Um, so onset of TBI is obviously with the event, with the trauma that takes place. And um, because of that, the decline rate can be variable. Um, and the nature of the decline is going to be either static if there's no injury for a long time, or it could be stepwise, kind of like vascular dementia, if they've got multiple injuries taking place within a certain amount of time. Um, you all also see, and, and the, probably the main differentiating thing for this one is an increased ICP. Um, be careful with pseudotumor cerebri uh, with that, um, the pseudotumor cerebri will resolve with when you lower the ICP versus a TBI will not resolve. So that is the main differentiating factor between those two. It seems like most of the questions that um, would be easy to write for a TBI are questions related to the period of time that somebody was affected by loss of consciousness, right? The, the time that they've had, the, the, before they come out of uh, coma, right? I, I think that's kind of where most of the questions go to on this. Did you guys see other questions on TBI-related neurocognitive disorders? Yeah, it just depends on which point in the traumatic brain injury that we're asking about. Sometimes it asks you to distinguish between um, epidural versus subdural hematomas or you know, years later being able to figure out kind of the very specific point of your brain that got injured and what kind of symptoms you're going to see from that. So it's it's a 
very large umbrella of different types of questions you could get. Generally not a question trying to have you diagnose the type of dementia though. Mm -hmm. I think TBIs probably less likely to have you figure out the type of dementia. Uh, maybe HIV is going to be less often figure out the dementia. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, vascular dementias are pretty easy to identify at this point uh, for most people and so that's probably not going to be the one that you have to figure out. Maybe it is, you talked about figuring out the stepwise nature. But I think the ones that are, are going to show up are things like Alzheimer's, prion disease, mm -hmm. the Lewy body, and if you get a Lewy body, you're gonna to have to figure out whether it's Lewy body or Parkinson's, mm -hmm. rather than identify that it's one of the dementias. So, so in a sense, I think there's three or four dementias you have to figure out how to identify, and then how to separate out some others from other events. And I think the last one that is particularly important for the psych shelf exam and psych questions is pseudo-dementia, because it can really sneak up on you um, and that is neurocognitive decline due to depression, right? Can I say it differently? Yeah, Because please. I think it's supposed to be reversible. Yeah. So it's not a decline, it would be a change. Neurocognitive change. Neuro neurocognitive it. change, and I believe it can be reversible. It right? can, yeah. So, so it's not considered to be a neurocognitive disorder, but it is a manifestation of a severe depression. Yeah, and, you, and, and the questions that they'll ask you about are very, very concerning because They'll even start off the question, and you'll probably see this in clinic as well, family members bringing in an older member of the family or caretakers bringing in an older patient saying we're concerned about Alzheimer's. Sometimes they'll even bring up a family history of Alzheimer's. But then, so then you're primed to think neurocognitive disorder, but then you start counting the symptoms of the portion of the question when you're actually interviewing the patient and you see adhedonia, they're starting to pull back from friends and hobbies, they just aren't getting up in the morning, they're losing or gaining weight, you know, you start collecting those MDD symptoms and when you have five, you can you can say, maybe we should treat this with an SSRI or, you know, follow that line and if it's uh, reversible, then we don't have to worry so much about Alzheimer's. Just to piggyback off what Josh just said, I actually did have a question the other day that resembled that almost perfectly. I'm gonna need some help because I can't remember if it was the uh, MMSE or the MOCA scale, but under 26 would be considered neurocognitive decline. Is that MOCA or is that the... 26 is MMSE. MMSE. So if that's the case, the question stem stated that his MMSE score was 25, wanting you to go down the Alzheimer route because they had a history of Alzheimer's and you see that his mental status exam his score was low But like Josh said in the question stem it did state he had lost interest in activities. He'd stopped seeing his friends um, appetite change and the answer was uh, Depression Okay, so watch out for what's called pseudo dementia, but is simply a depressive syndrome, right? Mm -hmm. Motor psychomotor slowing I think is often pronounced in that setting uh, I want to now jump ahead to something else, and this was a question I asked. I think, at least in Utah, there's a, a question in my mind about the possibility of transmission of chronic wasting disease to human populations. And so I think I said, well, talk, talk to me about chronic wasting disease, and it's in CERIDS, C-E-R-I-D-S, that means deer and elk and... Yep. Right, it's so it's cervid, I think. Cervid. Cervid, yeah. Okay. Um, and, and, yeah, the word cervid just means deer. Um, and so, basically, chronic wasting disease, um, it's another transmissible spongiform encephalopathy, or TSE, as we've talked about. Um, it's thought that it is derived from scrapie uh, due to the cohabitation of sheep and deer. Um, so... Symptoms you'll see in the animal is emaciation, ataxia, salivation, depression I thought was interesting. I, I don't know how you tell if a deer is depressed or not, but um, muscle, waste, muscle wasting and weakness. Um, so the type of spread that it has is mostly horizontal and it can be direct or indirect. Now the indirect part is scary because that is the urine, the feces, and the saliva of the animal. Um, and the current theory is that once the prions are released into the environment, they remain infectious in the soil for years. 
And so this to eradicate this disease would be almost impossible to do um, because of that. So they've had several studies on, on chronic wasting disease and they've shown that it can also get transmitted to various species like cattle, sheep, goats, ferrets, and raccoons. Um, and in those species, it's been shown to have a longer incubation time. Um, the current thoughts on human transmission, as, as Dr. Roundy was curious about, um, they're contentious. So there's been two studies that have shown evidence, no evidence of transmission, and there's one study that is yet unpublished as of this year um, that uses both um, PCMA, which is protein, uh, or sorry, PMCA, which is protein misfolding cyclic amplification assay, as well as the RT-QUIC, which we talked about earlier. Um, and they use both of those techniques to show that under certain conditions, um, they were able to get the protein from chronic wasting disease deer, infected deer, to convert the um, human PRPC protein into a pathogenic form, um, which is, is very scary. And the other part that they found out that was um, concerning to me was that repetitive amplification of that increase the capability and so over the years basically this there are there are multiple strains and the strains are just becoming more and more infective towards humans um, we think we think anyway potentially potentially um, Th there is there have been some changes in prevalence in the populations right in the herds it's a lot more common now than it was I, I think the first case was identified in what Colorado and 67 something along those lines part, part of the problem with that is it's a lot more widely distributed than in in the tissue types um, so that makes the exposure just that much more dangerous like and and uh, variable spreads amongst faster. the animals yeah it just spreads so much faster the the distribution now not just in the tissues but in the like the geography I think is is what I understood had increased as well. Yes. Okay. So, um, bison do not have this that you found. I did not see any indication of bison elk? having it. Elk, yes. Uh, Mule-tailed deer. Yes. White-tailed deer. Yep. Black-tailed deer. I'm not sure. On that I don't one. remember seeing that one either. Um, if you're eating ferrets, <laughs> raccoons. Goats, what about bighorn sheep? Um, I didn't see anything about bighorn sheep in there. Okay. There's always that worry of scrapie, though. Fair enough. All right, so uh, I think a lot of the notes that followed kind of got subsumed by the chart we put together. Was there anything that we haven't talked about in this podcast that would be worth bringing up again? I know that there's a couple of programs. This is, we didn't write this down, but watching a couple of hunting programs and reading field and stream I think that a couple of states have programs in which if you hunt and you bring in one of these antlered animals you can send off samples of meat to get uh, tested which according to some of the research that we've read might be a good idea to start getting your meat tested though I'm not sure how extensive those programs are or how good they are at detecting um, the thing or the you know prion diseases and stuff like that so be careful out there hunting, but uh, maybe look into that if you're an avid hunter and a budding medical student prepping for your shelf exams at the same time. <laughs> Take home from the two of you. Who's first? I'll go first. This is actually I wanted to add on. Um, I'm not sure how much they test on the pathophysiology of prion disease, but I do remember watching a video um, saying the PRP gene or the PRP protein that we've been talking about. The reason and this does kind of go towards the clinical side of it, but um, once it gets misfolded, there's no way for our body to kind of correct that folding, and those misfolded proteins will actually go and, um, in fact, I guess, correctly fold the proteins and kind of convert them to incorrectly, and it kind of spreads. And, cert and um, currently, there's no cure for um, prion disease, and so um, if, you s if they do ask a question on the pathophysiology, 
with inking misfolded proteins. I think I read that they make beta sheets. Is that correct? I believe that's correct. Yeah. Yeah, and and we want an alpha fold instead of a beta mm -hmm. beta sheet. Is is what I think I remember on that. Yeah. Um, take home point then. Take home would be to uh, not gloss over the little facts. <laughs> <laughs> now that you have uh, done the prep on this, you guys uh, came to me what about a week ago. So let's do this. And uh, you've also been madly going through shelf exam prep. Are you now able to get these questions more correctly or do you know enough to just like trip over your own feet now? Probably a bit of both. <laughs> a little bit of both, I think. I think if there is a way for Dr. Roundy to get that chart published, it's, I, I will personally be using this chart to study for my shelf exam this Friday. Yeah, we'll, f we'll find a way to put this out there so that, uh, so that the students can use it, because I think it's a helpful chart. And I think there's a way to kind of tighten it up so that maybe it speaks to the best information. I feel like there's a lot of information on, on uh, that we talked about that probably is fluff in terms of the shelf exam, right? What really matters is how do you figure out which neurocognitive disorder it is, and then what do you do about it, right? We, we talk about the history because it's interesting. We talk about a lot of different aspects, but when, it, when push comes to shove, the key differences between these conditions are what I think seem to be pushing the how do we find the differences and the, the role that genetics and proteins have had in, in kind of understanding that. So yeah, we'll try, I'll see if I can't make it look a little better by this time tomorrow. We'll see. I think, uh, spoiler alert, there might be another ketamine podcast up tomorrow too. Hmm. Take home, Boston. As far yeah, as far as my take home, I would say do not forget the myoclonus symptom in prion disease. I feel like it it overall is like the most distinguishing factor um, for prion disease with all these other um, variants of major neurocognitive disorder disorder that we've talked about. Fair enough. Anything? I think you mentioned something already. Did you have anything else? Yeah, I just, um, there's always the human aspect of this. It's always a reminder of why we're studying uh, for these shelf exams. A lot of these uh, pathologies can be pretty debilitating when seen uh, in, uh, in these patients. So make sure that not only you can recognize it, but uh, know that these are real people connected to some of these. and Not, not some of these, all of these. Yeah. So my take home is uh, I was absolutely fascinated. Um, I don't think, if I had been taught about the distinctions between the uh, variant CJD, the spontaneous CJD, and the familial CJD, in other words, these three different kinds of pathways to um, spongiform encephalopathies, I've forgotten it. I, I, the, this was a great review for me. It was something that I didn't, I hadn't really wrapped my head around. I think I was under the impression that it, it was all the same uh, spongiform encephalopathy that was manifest different ways in uh, between species. And now I'm left with something very different. I'm left with the idea that these are probably different kinds of conditions that go fairly clearly back to that 19Q13, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, that, that very specific protein that seems to be formed and that some people have a different protein than other people. So you can have either probably susceptibility to uh, spontaneous formation. You can have perhaps susceptibility to um, an infectious prion that you ingest somehow, or you just have the disease. There are other things that, that kind of cross my mind that I want to learn more about and understand better in addition to those distinctions. And that includes why the familial type doesn't seem to express itself like before age 20. I think all the familial types were much later than that. So there's this later onset of something that generally seems to affect people much sooner. So, so lots of different kinds of things. The role of the, the protein, this channel that's involved in, in, in patients that have these conditions, it seems to be that when that channel 
when that protein is affected, that it looks like quite often psychosis is present. What role does that play in something that, that is important to me, which is schizophrenia, right? So all of these things are now uh, bouncing around in my head, and this is one of those podcasts that I think was more of a scratch the surface and a way to help me do a better job at categorizing how I think about neurocognitive disorders but the heart of it, it really opened up a new world of understanding or looking at things that I hadn't looked at in a very long time and in a way that made me realize how far behind my medical students I am in some areas. So thank you for the great topic. And on that note, team out. Team out. Team out. Team out.